Bible, open to 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel 2. This morning we're beginning in earnest our study through the book of Samuel. I say the book of Samuel because if you were here last week and, and uh, for the introduction of this series or you heard it on the podcast, you might remember that I told you that originally there was no such thing as 1 and 2 Samuel, originally. Um, uh, but it was called the Book of Samuel, or the Chronicles of Samuel, the seer, as First Chronicles 29, 29 put it. You'll remember, the same is true for Kings and Chronicles, by the way. And the reason we have First and Second Samuel now is because in the transition over the course of time, uh, right around the time they translated the, the Old Testament for the first time into Greek, which was the Septuagint, they were transitioning from scrolls to a, a codex, which is more like a book would make a very large book. So they uh, divided it into two. Now we have first and second Samuel. Last week, we just tried to introduce some things, uh, nuts and bolts kind of thing. Do we know who wrote this work? When was it written? Why was it written? And I tried to introduce just a couple of main themes that we're going to see throughout the the book. Um, I just mentioned two. There's more than we could mention. The sinfulness of man is going to be a stark thing that you see throughout that's, that still keeps you waiting for a Savior to see the sinfulness of man still running throughout. And the second theme I mentioned, which was, which was broad, uh, but I just called it the, the steadfast love of God you see throughout. And that shows up in, in a multitude of ways. And I just mentioned too, steadfast love of God shows up in, in, his, in God's just quiet, quiet providence working in the... And a lot, a lot of times, you just have, have to have eyes to see it. Sometimes it doesn't say... Sometimes it will say, this happened because it was the will of the Lord for this to happen. It's just some quiet event. But sometimes something just happens, and there's no fanfare with it, but you just have to step back and go, that was just random, like that that happened that way. And you see the quiet providence of God just moving His plan, His saving plan forward in history. You see the steadfast love of God just in what I call his gracious faithfulness to his people um, throughout the book. We're going to see that. But, and we'll see some of those things in the first three chapters today. I told you we would be looking at, at 1 Samuel 1 through 3 so that, that you would have a chance this week to read it and not the chat GPT version that Kurt Johnson put on the group me this morning, slacker. Um, <clears throat> But to read it this week, and I, I meant to already. I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to post, if I can remember it, um, a schedule of the whole summer uh, uh, so that you can know ahead of time what, what chapters we're going to be covering so that the week leading up, you can read it for yourself. And my, my advice to you um, is uh, to read it a couple of times, whatever it is. Read it once just to get the story. And then go back through a second time at a slower pace and just try to keep your eyes open for those little things that I was talking about that seem insignificant on first reading. But on second reading, you thought that might be important because sometimes it is those little things that turn out to be big, big, big things. And do that. I say that all the time. Read it ahead of time. I say that no matter what we're studying. But this in particular, it's because, you know, this was originally one book. It's together it's 55 chapters that's longer than the book of genesis it's it's nearing the length of one of the major prophets isaiah or jeremiah and we only have 12 weeks this summer and so greg key and i are going to tag team uh teaching this thing this summer we're going to have to be flying by the seat of our pants through a lot of ground 
through this thing, and it'll really help you to have already read it when we come to it. But like today, we're covering three chapters. We're not going to be able to read the whole thing at the outset like we normally would. Um, uh, so uh, we're just going to start at a, at a good place, um, and which I've, I've said First uh, Samuel chapter 2. We're going to find, um, and I, we'll read a text from there in just a minute, what we're going to see in the first three chapters here uh, is, is really some just essential foundational information for the rest of the story. It's like, it's like the prologue to a, a major work that helps you understand some characters, um, sort of understand what's going on and anticipate what's coming next. Uh, we'll be introduced to some of those early characters in chapter 1. There is a very important prayer in chapter 2. Um, it's one of the most important prayers in the Bible. Um, I wish we could spend a whole Sunday on it. But then in, by the end of chapter 3, you're going to be ready for what's coming next in the story. Um, so here we are in, in, in 1 Samuel 2. I want to begin just with reading Hannah's prayer, which is verses 1 through 10. That's, I had to pick something to read because I always want to start with God's word to us. So 1 Samuel 2, and I'm not starting here because we're going to skip chapter 1. We'll go back. But uh, as, as, just to start to, to get our bearings, let's read Hannah's prayer, uh, 1 Samuel 2, 1 through 10. And there we read, And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol, and he raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low, and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillar of the earth, the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones. But the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Let's pray. Lord, um, this beautiful prayer and everything else that we're going to read here in 1 Samuel and, and, and the other places that we'll turn to, we recognize as and confess to you our belief that it is your holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, clear, 
authoritative and necessary word. And Lord, we ask once again that as we come to this, oh Lord, would you give us eyes to see clearly the truth that you have set forth for us here? Would you give us minds to understand it and grasp it very clearly? And would you give us hearts then to embrace and recognize as not just important, but eternally important. Give us, give us those kinds of hearts. Give us wills to obey whatever it is we would be admonished to do in these words. Would you give us all ears to hear what the Spirit is saying in the Word, and would you give me the help that I do need to teach? And I ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, that's a beautiful and amazing prayer. Like I said, I wish we could spend more time on it. We will come back to it in due course. And I'll say a few things about it. But we're going to, again, we're looking at chapters 1 through 3. If you're taking notes, here's how um, I, I, I want to uh, dive into it and structure our thoughts. Just like last week, just two broad points this morning. Um, I'll have to, uh, plenty to say underneath each one. So the first point that I want to bring out here and is, is, is just to talk through what I'll call the story. Okay? Even though we can't read it all, um, I, I do want to walk through the story of these three chapters to make sure that we're all seeing the same thing and recognize some of the important elements of the story of these first three chapters. I won't be able to say everything, but this is going to take the bulk of our time, just walking through the story and, and so that we all see what we're supposed to be seeing in these three chapters. And then the second point, which we'll come to at the end for just a little bit, is called the rest of the story, okay? We've got the story and the rest of the story where I just want to walk back through a couple of points from the story uh, and, and, and zoom out and kind of see those from the, the viewpoint of the rest of the Bible and, and how, how those couple of points that are right here in 1 Samuel are propelling us forward. It's not, it's not trying to read something back into the text that wasn't there at the beginning. I want to I look at the wider text to show how from the get-go, 1 Samuel is propelling us forward to Christ, propelling us forward to the gospel. Um, and so that's our plan. So let's go back to chapter 1. Let's start at the beginning, and we'll dive in and try to get our heads around what's, what's going on uh, in the story as we enter the book of Samuel. And as we do that, the first thing we encounter in the opening verses, is uh, the cast of characters uh, in these early chapters. So look at, at verse 1. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim, of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroam, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, an Ephrathite. Okay, we'll stop right there. So the first character you're introduced to in this story is a man named Elkanah. And again, think about the descriptions that are, are given of him. He lived in a place called Ramathaim Zophim. Elsewhere, for understandable reasons, is just shortened to Rama. If you look at verse 19, um, it, it, it says that they went back to their house at Rama. So, um, and, and at the end of verse 1, it says that he was an Ephrathite, which tells us very likely he was originally from Bethlehem. Uh, you know, in, in the Old Testament, several times, Bethlehem, Bethlehem is referred to by its longer name, Bethlehem Ephrathah, uh, which you see most famously in Micah 5, 2, where the prophecy about where Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah. Uh, that's, that's 
likely where um, Elkanah was born. Now he lives in the hill country in Rama. But the more important thing about him is here, notice the genealogical information that's given to him. It, it doesn't just tell us who his father was. It gives us four generations of his line, um, which, which is just an indication that this was a, likely a prominent family. Like, it wasn't just here's who his daddy was. Here's who his daddy, his granddaddy, and his great-granddaddy was. Like, this, is, this was, a, this was a, an important man. And the other, uh, it, it, he was probably not just important, but a man of, of means and of wealth. Uh, and the other way we know that is when we come to verse 2, we realize he has two wives. And he had to be able to afford two wives and a big family, right? Um, by the way, he has two wives. This is not the Bible condoning polygamy, right? This is just the Bible saying what was. He had two wives. And you know from the second chapter of Genesis, this is not according to the will of the Lord. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his singular wife, right? So, uh, but people walk contrary to God's word all the time. You do and I do. And this is, and Elkanah did. So he has two wives. But with that, you're introduced to two more characters. Uh, his two wives, the first is Hannah. Uh, that's her name. And then the second is Panina. Panina. We'll come back to um, the other, other important information about them in just a minute. So we have Elkanah, his two wives, Hannah and Panina. But for now, look at verse 3, and where we meet uh, some other main characters. Um, they go up to, to worship. Uh, the Lord at Shiloh. We'll say more about that in just a second. You notice the, 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 the tabernacle here, um, the place of worship is in Shiloh, not, in, not yet in Jerusalem. But the priests there at the time were Eli and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And we'll learn plenty about them in these first three chapters. If you read them, you know what I'm talking about. While we're here, uh, let, me just, let me say a quick word about the tabernacle. Uh, this would still be the tabernacle that was portable you know, throughout Exodus and, and Leviticus and Numbers and, and, and Deuteronomy, uh, just a tent. But here, it, at this point in time in Shiloh, it appears that it may have been a little bit more of a sturdy variety of a tent if it, if it was just a tent. Just notice like in verse 9, by the way, uh, it says, Eli the priest was sitting beside the doorposts. So there were doorposts in this place. It was a st- and if you, if you looked over in chapter 3, verse 15, it says, Samuel lay until morning, then he opened the doors of this place. So it, double, it was like doorposts with double doors. It seemed like a substantial kind of place. Just an in- interesting tidbit, not crucial to the story at all. So we move on. Well, now we have almost, almost all the main characters of this part of the story. Elkanah and his two wives, Hannah and Panina, the priest Eli, his two priest sons, Hophni and Phinehas. And you'll notice I have not mentioned the most important main character of the story. We'll get to him in due time. But being, being introduced to this cast of characters so far, let's think through now the, the situation that is developing in the story. Um, this is context for the unfolding story, the rest of the story. So we look back at verse 2 again. We don't just learn the names of Elkanah's two wives, Hannah and Panina, but there's another comment, a very important one, attached to the verse about them. It says, and Panina had children, and Hannah had no children. All right? Um, uh, that's not just an important 
um, part of this story. It is. But, uh, and we'll see why. But, but if, you, if you're familiar with your, 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 not just your Old Testament, your New Testament as well, this, this is a significant pattern in Scripture uh, of, of barrenness. Just think of all the important times that we have a very important story in the Bible, a part of which is a woman who is barren. Uh, you have Abraham's wife, Sarah. That's, the, that's a big one, right? In Genesis 11, Genesis 1130, uh, Sarah was barren and had no children. Isaac's wife, Rebecca, for probably 20 years. Um, Jacob's wife, Rachel. Uh, and, and, and are there many more important characters in the Old Testament than Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? I mean, like, this is big turning points. But you also, later, and this is going to have connection to, to Samuel, who we'll mention in a minute, but like you come and, and you, have the, you have the book of Judges, and in Judges 13, Manoah's wife, was barren until the Lord gave them a child who was Samson, um, who was a Nazarite. That's the connection to Samuel, we'll t- say about it. But then it's not just the Old Testament. You come to the New Testament. Elizabeth was barren, uh, who, who, who ended up having John the Baptist. And it's not necessarily barrenness, but those are all sort of like lesser preludes, little, little fainter pictures of the greatest uh, miraculous birth, which is Mary, who was not just barren, she was a virgin who ended up having an important son, <laughs> you know. Uh, but you see this pattern of barren women to whom the Lord sovereignly brings children to advance His purpose of salvation. So if you're familiar with Scripture, you know that even before you read anything else in First Samuel, you read that, that, that uh, Hannah is barren and you think, this might be an important detail. Something important might happen here. Um, but you also understand, as soon as you read that Hannah has no children, that there is a tension going on here. Um, because uh, Elkanah didn't have just, just one wife, but two. Hannah was barren and childless. Panina, we're told, had children. In fact, verse 4 mentions, quote, all her sons and daughters. So she didn't just have kids, she had a bunch of kids. Um, interestingly also, this is just an interesting thing to note here, um, Hannah's name means favored, favored, or grace. It means grace or favored. That's, ha- that's the meaning of Hannah's name. The meaning of Panina's name is fruitful, fruitful. And so um, she certainly appeared to be that with all her sons and daughters, but Hannah's name means Favored, and at this point in the story, though, I mention that because at this point in the story, Hannah appears to be everything but that, but favored, right? And the, the tension is not just in the paradoxical meanings of their names, but in the relationship between Hannah and Panina. Uh, chapter 1 tells us that every year Elkanah would take his whole family to Shiloh to offer sacrifice to the Lord. And at the, at the sacrificial meal that would follow that, um, Panina used to deride and ridicule Hannah for her lack of children. I, I suppose as they were, as Elkanah was giving out portions of the meat to everybody in the family, it probably took him a while to get through the portions to Panina's family and her kids. And then it was just Hannah. So it says he would give her a double portion because he loved her, but certainly... Um, it, it, we're, we have to read between the lines, but Panina would ridicule 
Hannah uh, during those times about her lack of children. Uh, it was almost competition, as it were. Um, but, uh, but it tells us in verse 6 very plainly that the Lord had closed her womb. In verse 7 says, it begins, that it, it went on year by year. And you, you can imagine how, how many years it would have gone on given the fact that Panina had many sons and daughters, right? And how long it would have taken to have many sons and daughters. It, it says that, that year by year, uh, Panina would provoke her and Hannah would weep and she wouldn't eat even though Elkanah gave her a double portion. Verse 8, Elkanah gives her uh, a not very good comfort. Man's giving it his best, but it's just not good. Um, but she goes alone to, she goes alone, one year she just says enough, she goes alone to the temple tabernacle uh, to pray. Verse 10 says that she was deeply distressed when she prayed to the Lord and she wept bitterly. But look at her prayer in verse 11. She vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and, and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. So notice, for the first time in the Old Testament, she refers to God as the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts, which, which is a reference uh, to the, the power and the might uh, of, of God. The, the, the CSB translates this, Lord of armies. Lord of armies, referring to the angelic hosts. Uh, you remember that later in the Old Testament, there's a battle, and there's like, there, there is more of us than with, the, with us than with them. And there's just, uh, the Lord's armies are at war uh, for his people. And even the stars of heaven are called the, the host, the armies of God at, in, the, in the prophets. But So in this prayer, when she says, Lord of hosts, you, you understand that Hannah in this prayer has a clear view of the majesty uh, of God. When, and she has that view of God. And then she says, remember me. Don't forget me. Well, who is she? I mean, outside looking in, she's not anybody special. She's just one woman. She's just one of two wives, right? She's living in the hill country of Ephraim. She lives in the sticks, one of two wives. I mean, she's not even known to Eli the priest, as we'll see. Let alone, if Eli doesn't know her, how many, does God himself know her, the Lord of hosts? But Hannah is confident that the Lord knows her. When she prays, remember me, don't forget me, she doesn't mean that literally in the sense that God can forget things or doesn't know things. She's, he's the Lord of hosts. She knows he's omniscient. She knows he knows all things. He knows her. She is saying, would you look on me with favor in keeping with the meaning of my own name? Right? So she asks for a son, and she vows to devote him back to the Lord for all his life. And when she says, no razor shall touch his head, she is saying, I will devote him to be under a Nazarite vow. If you don't know what a Nazarite vow is, uh, you can, 
in later, you can look up Numbers chapter 6. It'll tell you all about the Nazarite vow, Numbers chapter 6. Um, but it was a special devotion to the Lord. This is important. Just file that away. Samuel, Nazarite. We'll come back to it later. But we need to move on. Eli comes into the story here because Hannah has gone to the tabernacle to pray. Eli the priest is there, and he notices that when Hannah is praying that prayer that we just read, read, that she wasn't praying audibly for everybody to hear. But she was moving her mouth. She was just praying under her breath. Her mouth was moving quietly to the Lord. But how does Eli interpret it? He thinks she's drunk, right? He says in verse 14, How long will you go on being drunk? Put away your wine from you. Now that, that tells you a lot, okay? Like that, that's the kind of stuff that you should slow down and just think about. Because why would the priest just assume this is a drunk woman? It tells you a lot about Eli. It tells you a lot about the spiritual state of Israel at the time. It tells you a lot about the spiritual state of his own two sons, as we'll see in, in a moment. Um, just, just to dip our toe in that water for a second. Remember, uh, chapter 1, verse 3 told us that Hophni and Phinehas, his sons, were priests of the Lord. But chapter 2, verse 12 were, will, will tell us um, that they did not know the Lord. They did not know the Lord. We'll find out more in chapter 2 why Eli made this assumption about Hannah. But she assures him, and oh, there's an, another interesting play on words today. If you'll look at verse 16, she says to Eli, do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. What is the word going to be used of, of Hophni and Phinehas? They were worthless sons. She's like, I'm not like them, right? Uh, so she assures him that she's not drunk. That she, what, she tells him what she has prayed for, and he blesses her in verse 17. Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made of him. He's like, may God give you what you've asked for. But I want to point out something that may seem like a needless detail, uh, but it's an, it's an important play on words if you're trying to, in, in the literary sense of this story. In verse 17... Eli uses the Hebrew word sa'al, sa'al. If you're writing it in English, it's S-A apostrophe A-L, sa'al, um, which that word means to ask, okay? And it's going to be a repeated word many times in this chapter alone. He's going to use it actually twice in verse 17. Um, here's, what, here's what he, if you literally translated what Eli said to, to Hannah. He said, may the God of Israel give you the asking which you asked from him. May he give you the sa'al which you sa'al from him, the asking which you asked. But now look at, and just file that away for just a second. Now look at Hannah's transformation. Once she prayed, then it says in, in verse 18, um, she, she went her way. She ate again. Her face was no longer sad. She was so confident that the Lord had heard her and that he did favor her. That, that simply bringing to him the request changed her whole outlook. Here's what, here is what comes to my mind when I see this transformation. She, Hannah is the living embodiment of, of what all of us would be if 
if we lived out 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7. 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Right? Hannah is the living embodiment of all of that. She humbled herself under the mighty hand of God, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, and she casted all her anxieties on him, knowing that he cared for her, and she walks away a changed person. Well, she didn't know when the proper time would be that God would uh, answer her request, but it was enough for her to know that he cared, and he was the Lord of armies. We're not told how much time passed, but in verses 19 and 20, we're told that the Lord did remember her, and she conceived and bore a son, who is the uh, major character of this story that I did not mention earlier. It says uh, in, in verse um, 20 that she called his name Samuel. Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. Samuel, there's probably a footnote in your Bible maybe that says, uh, Samuel sounds like the Hebrew word heard of God or heard by God. Um, and you might notice that other Hebrew word that we just mentioned, Saul, when it says, I have asked for him from the Lord. It, it, it's, like in, it's like in naming her son Samuel, she is confessing to the Lord, I asked for him from the Lord and he heard me and I have this son. And the rest of chapter 1 is about Hannah raising Samuel until he was weaned at about three years old. Uh, but how at that time she brought him, as she had vowed, uh, to the Lord at Shiloh. That too, by the way, is uh, evidence of Hannah's unbelievable faith and trust in God. She knew the, the spiritual state of the house of God at Shiloh. I mean, Eli, three years earlier, thought she was a drunk woman. She knew who were the priests of the Lord at, at Shiloh, Hophni and Phinehas. And she's just leaving her kid there. That's, that's, that's amazing faith. But she tells Eli, hey, I'm the, I'm the lady three years ago who uh, prayed for a son, uh, and here he is. I vowed him to the Lord. And notice what, notice what she says in verses 27 and, 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 and 28. Um, she says, for this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. Now, you need to know that that word sa'al, which means ask, also means to lend, to lend something to someone. Uh, and so in, that, in those two verses, she uses the word Saul four times. Four times. It literally says, For this child I prayed, and Yahweh gave me my asking which I asked from him, and I have also given back what was asked to Yahweh all the days he lives. He is one that is asked for Yahweh. Four times. Why do I keep bringing this up? Because it's a tension that is intentionally building in 1 Samuel. Does the word Saul sound like a name that you're going to encounter in 1 Samuel? It sounds like the name Saul, who would be the first king of Israel, and not a great one. 
And so there's an intentional contrast building here between the son that Hannah asked for and the king that the people of Israel would ask for, right? That's just something to file away. But that brings us to chapter 2, and we need to move quickly. Hannah prays a prayer of thanksgiving and praise that we read earlier, and it's sort of divided up into three parts if you're just taking notes. Verses 1 through 3 is her personally just rejoicing in the Lord uh, for what had happened to her. 1 to 3 is just her personally rejoicing in the Lord. Then verses 4 through 8 is, is she is extolling God as a God of... This, and this is maybe the most... This is a very important part of this prayer. He, she is extolling God as a God of great reversals. Great reversals. Uh, think about what she describes in there. The bows of the mighty, what are they? They're broken. The, the feeble, what are they? Strong. The full... What are they doing? Hiring themselves out for bread. The barren have what? Children. And, and she is saying that the Lord is sovereign over all. Uh, like the verses 6 and 7 is, is what you might call a spectrum text. God is sovereign over the whole spectrum of things. He kills, he brings to life. He brings down, he raises up. He makes poor, he makes rich. He brings low, he exalts. God is doing it. That's a huge theme that we'll come back to in a minute. But even more so, verses 9 and 10. Uh, where Hannah is looking forward to a future king. We'll come back to that uh, in, at the end of our time here uh, in the next point. But let me round out the story quickly before that. The rest of the story, the rest of verse 2 and chapter 3, the rest of this is all a back and forth between Eli and his sons and Samuel. And it starts in chapter 2, verse 11. Note Chapter 2, verse 11. There we read, And Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy, that would be Samuel, ministered to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. I want you to notice this back and forth. So there's a statement about Samuel. Samuel ministered to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. And then, that's verse 11. Then from verses 12 to 17, it's a description of Eli's worthless sons, Hophni and Phinehas. It says in verse 12 that they did not know the Lord. It says on the other end of that in verse 17 that they treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. So it's a description of his worthless sons, 12 to 17. But then it comes back to Samuel in verse 18. The boy Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed in a linen ephod. Why is a linen ephod important? What's he dressed like? A priest. He's dressed like a priest. Um, that's what they wore according to the law. Uh, and verse 21 says that the young man Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. But then as soon as it has that word about Samuel, it goes back to Eli's worthless sons. It says in verse 22 that they were sleeping with the women in the tabernacle. You think that's another clue as to why Eli might have assumed something about Hannah? That she was another one of those women? It helps you understand his suspicion. But then you also have not just the, the wickedness of Eli's sons, but you have also in that section Eli's rebuke of his sons. Yes, but he doesn't remove them as priests. He's bad too. Um, but again, after, after that rotten description of them, it comes back to Samuel again in verse 26. 
the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. That sounds maybe familiar. That's what it says about Jesus in Luke 2. He grew in favor with God and man. Well, after this is said about Samuel, a man of God, this is the end of chapter 2, a man of God comes, we're not told who it is, comes to Eli and he prophesies that the Lord would judge Eli's house because of his sons and because of Eli's tolerance of his sons. And the Lord says through the man of God in verse 35, I will, and you need to note this verse, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind and I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. We'll come back to that. That's important. But then notice chapter 3 verse 1. It comes back to Samuel again. Now the young man Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli. Now, I know we flew through that. But did you notice anything in that verse? The back and forth began in chapter 2, verse 11, where the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the what? Eli the priest. Eli the priest. Now it ends in chapter 3, verse 1, with the boy ministering to the Lord, and, and it just says, under Eli. He's no longer the priest. Right? Samuel was sort of, serving as a quasi-priest. Um, but chapter 3 is going to show that he's not the faithful priest that God was raising up. But I do need to summarize quickly what's, what's going on in chapter 3. Notice first some imagery that's going on. Chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. But then notice this. The word of the Lord was rare in those days, and there was no frequent vision. It's a low point. But the rest of the chapter of chapter 3 is going to be about to whom will the word of God come again, right? Who's the word of God? To, it's not coming to Eli anymore. The word was rare. So who is God going to speak to again? And notice the imagery of verses 2 and 3. Verse 2 tells us that Eli's eyesight had begun to grow dim, which certainly could have been true uh, literally, but it also seems to be symbolic of the spiritual light had gone out of Eli, right? Uh, but then verse 3 says, but the lamp of God had not gone out. You know, I think that could be literally true. Samuel's in there sleeping in the Holy of Holies. Maybe the light was still on. But I think it's also imagery, the lamp of God had not gone out. God's quiet providence was still working. And you have this scene where Samuel is sleeping in the Holy of Holies. Because notice it says, he was lying down, this is verse 3, he was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. So he's nestled up to the Holy of Holies, uh, and, uh, and, it, and, and he keeps hearing the word of the Lord, but he doesn't yet recognize it, right? Um, but the third time, he understands it, and the Lord tells him that the time is now for the downfall of Eli's house, just like the man of God had said earlier, which he tells Eli the next morning. And chapter 3, verse 20, we're flying, says that um, in all Israel from Dan to Beersheba, which that's from top to bottom, uh, knew that Samuel was established as a priest? No, as a prophet of the Lord. 
Samuel was not that faithful priest that was promised to come since he was established as Israel's first ongoing prophet of the Lord since Moses. Right? Um, Verse 21 says, The Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord had revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. So the, the chapter begins with, The word of the Lord was rare. It ends with, The Lord was coming again to to Samuel. That's the story. That's the story. But as we try to wrap up this section, let me try to point out a couple of things from this section that point us to the rest of the story uh, before our time is, is over. Let's think about the rest of the story. There are two, uh, two main emphases in these first three chapters uh, that I want to note quickly that point us forward in the text itself to Christ and his work for our salvation. Um, and it's these two emphases. There's, there's in these passages, in, in, in these chapters, there's a promise of a greater priest coming, and there's a promise of a greater king coming. A greater priest is coming, a greater king is coming. Um, and I want to say just a little about each of those before we close. So remember... Uh, let's think first about the greater priest coming. Remember, we, I told you to note chapter 2, verse 35, uh, where the Lord said, I will raise up, or they said through the man of God, he said, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind, and I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And seeing that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord and not that faithful priest that it was talking about, who is that faithful priest that was going to come? Well, hold your place here in, in 1 Samuel 2 and just flip over first to uh, 1 Kings. It's not very far. 1 Kings chapter 2. 1 Kings chapter 2. And when you get to 1 Kings chapter 2, uh, look with me in chapter uh, in, ver- in, in a few of these verses. First Kings chapter two. Look with me first in verses twenty six and twenty seven. First Kings two, verses twenty six and twenty seven. And to Abiathar the priest, to Abiathar the priest, the king said, "Go to Anathoth, to your estate, for you deserve death." Not a word that you want to hear, but. I will not at this time put you to death because you carried the ark of the Lord before uh, the Lord God before David my father and because you shared in all my father's affliction. So Solomon expelled Abiathar from being priest to the Lord, comma, thus fulfilling the word of the Lord that he had spoken concerning the house of Eli in Shiloh. So this is the Lord finally bringing down Eli's house, right? Just as he had said. Abiathar, related to Eli, he gone. So who, but who comes in his, in his place? Look down in verse 35. The king put Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, over the army in the place of Joab, and the king put Zadok the priest in the place of Abiathar. Uh, so Zadok was made the priest in, in the place of Abiathar. Is Zadok the, the, the fulfillment of the promise of a greater king? Well, he might be like a, a little one, right? I, I, he may be a partial fulfillment along the way, 
But clearly the New Testament points us to Jesus Christ is that faithful priest that was ultimately given. We don't have time to go into all that, but just one great text, take a note of it, Hebrews chapter 2, 14 to 18. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the servant of God, a service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That's, that, is, that is 1 Samuel 2. Who is that, who is that faithful uh, priest coming? But what about the promise of a greater king coming? Um, and you can go back to, to 1 Samuel 2. Um, I think we see the, 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 the promise of a, or the, the propelling us to a greater king. We see it in a couple of ways. And both of them find root in Hannah's prayer. First, in a pattern, and second, in a promise. First, in a pattern, second, in a promise of a greater king. First, the pattern. Um, you know, I told you to file it away. Samuel, no razor shall ever come upon his head. He was a Nazarite from his birth for, the, for his whole life. He was a Nazarite prophet of the Lord. And uh, he was, think about Samuel's life. He was raised up as a prophet of the Lord, Nazarite prophet of the Lord, to be a prelude to a king who was coming. First, yes, to Saul, but not ultimately to Saul, ultimately in David. Samuel was prelude to David. Uh, and then Hannah prayed this prayer of hers in the midst of all of that. Well, you don't have to turn there, but when you come to the New Testament, you find a number of similarities between Hannah's prayer here and Mary's Magnificat, Mary's prayer around the time of the birth of Jesus. In your own time, I encourage you, just read those two side by side. And in, in the midst of all that, there was another, many scholars think, another Nazarite, John the Baptist, right, who was born to a barren woman who was prelude to a greater king coming, Jesus. That's the pattern you see. But... Um, also, there's more, a more specific promise fulfilled, and i gotta, I got to go. Um, going back to 1 Samuel 2, Hannah prayed. If you look at her prayer, she prayed in verse 10, The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the power of his anointed. She's praying of what God's going to do with his king. There was no king yet. There was no king in 1 Samuel yet. So who is she talking about? Well, if you go to the other end of the book of Samuel, which is 2 Samuel chapter 22, 2 Samuel chapter 22, you find King David's prayer and King David's song. And if you're looking at 2 Samuel 22, if you look at the, the end of that prayer, David says, in verses 50 and 51, For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing praises to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, that's language that Hannah prayed, and to David and his offspring forever. Hannah's prayer, yes, was sort of fulfilled in David. He is the king. He's the king she was praying for, but he's not, it's not ultimately fulfilled in David. David himself right here was looking to another king in his own line that was coming, to David and his offspring forever. 
And when you come to the New Testament, you see, again, that is fulfilled in Christ. Look again at 2 Samuel 22:50. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing praises to your name. That verse right there is quoted by the Apostle Paul in Romans 15, verses 8 and 9, where he's essentially saying that greater king was Jesus, who, like David, not only brought salvation to Israel, but Jesus is a greater king because he's bringing salvation to all the nations. It's 1030. I got I to land it. Um, what, what, I, I just say, we don't have time to talk around our tables. We, what a comfort. I just, I, I, I sit back on passages like this. And I just like, I just marvel. Like, what a comfort and assurance to see the work of our Savior, Jesus Christ, promised and patterned and fulfilled, like in, in real living, breathing history um, and fulfilled in such an amazing way. Um, I'm going to post the schedule of the rest of First and Second Samuel on the group me. Do, do yourself a favor. Don't do me a favor. Do yourself a favor. Read and reread the coming chapters before you come. Uh, you, you, you will get, it'll be a rich meal every week you come. This is, a, this is an amazing book, and I'm excited to think about the rest of it with you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for um, meeting with us around your word. I pray that... Um, if it felt like drinking from a fire hydrant, Lord, you would help uh, each of us to, to just ha- have it slow down in our minds and, and maybe go back and read chapters 1 through 3 again in light of what we've heard uh, and just, or, or the notes that we took and, and just marvel in you and your grace and your goodness and your sovereignty and the salvation that we have in Jesus and the certainty we can have in him because of all the preludes that, that prepared the way for us. Thank you, Lord, for this word. In Jesus' name.